welcome to the fifth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. And be sure to sign up for the new monthly e-newsletter. You'll get more info about the episodes and guests and more ways to engage with musical theater past and present. Sign up now at scenetosong.substack.com to make sure it's in your inbox. My guests today are Sean Mays and Dr. Sarah K. Whitfield. Sean is a music director active in both New York City and Toronto with a background in London and the UK. He is associate music director for Hadestown and assistant conductor for MJ the Musical. He is a vocal coach, accompanist, orchestrator, arranger, and pit musician, and has published on the history of music directing and the role of black music directors on Broadway. Sarah is a reader in musical theater at the University of Wolverhampton, UK. Her research focuses on exploring the historiography of musical theater and recovering the work of women and minoritized groups. She has published widely on collaborative practice in musical theater, film musicals, and in queer fan studies. Her most recent books are the edited collection, Reframing the Musical, Race, Culture, and Identity in 2019, and Sean and Sarah have co-authored the book, An Inconvenient Black History of British Musical Theater, 1900-1950, which came out in 2021. We're going to talk today about their book and its subject, Black History of British Musical Theater, 1900-1950. Hey, Sarah and Sean, thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So we'll get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? Do you want to go first one or shall I reveal my, do you know what? I've been thinking about this and I realized that it's Barnum that that is the thing because my mom had a VHS because I am very old that she used to play while she was doing the ironing on Sunday afternoons. And so it's a musical that I know back to front, but it was the thing that we watched over and over and over again. And it was Barnum, which is kind of the way, what a way in to a musical theater. Nice. That's, that's how you know you belong to this forever. <laughs> yeah, there's no way after that. No, there's no way out. I was thinking about that. I actually, I, I don't know. And I think that speaks a lot to just how much it was a part, always a part of, of my life, but never really explicitly a part of my life. You know, I, I mean, certainly probably one of the first examples would have been probably Sound of Music or Fiddler on the Roof. And I think it was because they were both musicals that were so connected to my my parents that they 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 really loved, particularly Fiddler on the Roof. Um, you know, they 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 both loved that that show a great deal. And so, you know, obviously we again, <laughs> much much like Sarah, we had we had all the we had VHSs of, of all that stuff and and, and would watch it. And um, and yeah, it was just always interesting to see how that was sort of the first story that kind of resonated in in musical form, particularly in a family where, you know, they were like, we had the VHSs, but you know, mom and dad were like, oh, we don't watch musicals. That's, we're not musical people. So that was, that was always, always a cool juxtaposition too. What, which musical has had the greatest impact on you? 
I really don't know if I, I know the fullest answer to that question because I, I think what I have found is, is some of the musicals that have had the fullest impact have been musicals, um, particu particularly where I've, I've ended up in a room of working with creatives and cast and with characters that, uh, that, 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 that look similar to, to the way I do. I think that certainly in terms of um, musicals, both that I've been involved with and that musicals that I've, I've seen, I think um, The Color Purple is probably one of those. Um, when, I, when I had that experience of working on it as um, conductor of the first, uh, the first production, full Canadian production of it in Canada, uh, it was a real moment. It was a moment for me and it was a moment for many of us in, in the room as largely a room of all artists of color to have a story where we are reflected and to also have a story that causes us to have to actually interact with ourselves in a way that sometimes we don't in, in, in this, this business, in this industry, with, these, with the stories that we are in or asked to be a part of often. Mine is because I think what is very, will become very clear very quickly is I'm a massive nerd. So uh, Sondheim is going to very quickly be the answer to quite a few of these questions. I mean, it has to be Sunday in the Park with George in so many ways because that experience is sort of, we, I know I've been thinking about this a lot since, since when I was passing, which is how these musicals, I'm about to turn 40 this year, right? And how these musicals have kind of shaped the way that I, think about things like writing and making and theatre and there's something about that musical which um children and art that's 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 the thing that's it children and art so I think it has to be that for sure what is a musical people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised you know it's interesting I think that my answer to that is probably Sunday in the park is with George as well you know and I think that again like for me it's such a I think that there's a notion that we um that that maybe we the musicals we love are tied in some specific way to and and certainly this is true but that the musicals that we love have to be very specifically tied to how we you know maybe how we identify or the type of music that we like enjoy listening to or or you know the characters that we see reflected in ourselves you know like on stage reflected back at us you know i would argue that most people probably would not be like Sean's the first person that we called to, to do sunday in the park right which is interesting um, but it is, so that might be a part of the surprise of, of that, you know, sort of joining it together. But I think that, you know, just like Sarah spoke to that, right. I mean, that show children and art, right. These are, these are such cons, even though this is such a, it's a show based around such a specific piece of art by a specific person in a very specific cultural context. These are thematically, um, what he was able to do in such a brilliant way as, as a, um, as a keeper of the, the, the theater was to create and help us see these stories that we truly can all be reflected in, in some capacity. Right. And so every time I watch that show, I'm always blown away by how universal, you know, some of those, even, even just the, the one main relationship in the show, you know, how, how much that, that can really resonate um, 
no matter who you are. See, for me, there is nothing. I don't think there's anything I could say that would be surprising because I clearly, I mean, I saw the original bounce like in Chicago. I spent all the rest of my student loan money to go and see it. There is no chill at all involved in my love for musicals. I suppose the thing that maybe will be surprising for my students is that I actually do love quite a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber big moments in musicals, I, I guess, maybe. But the thing I really love, and I think the wisest piece of advice someone's ever told me about theatre is that you will always find something, a moment of joy or a moment to love or a moment to learn from in any piece of theatre that you see. And I think there is something of that in all musicals you can find something that is there that kind of moves you in some way. So I think I don't think there's anything... I have two more to add to that. I'm gonna add. A, I'm gonna add a Vita, and I'm gonna add Sunset Boulevard. Oh boy! Come on, who could not love that big number? See, exactly. now I've said Andrew Lloyd Webber, it makes a safe space for Sean to say Andrew Lloyd Webber as well. <laughs> what is your favorite musical that no one else has heard of? Do you know what? I think the thing I have to pick is Love Life, even though it's so it's a Kurt Vile musical. It's a shocking musical. I'm sorry to anyone who's hoping to mount a revival. It will never work. But what I love about it was the moment that I had with it, which is incredibly selfish, but it was the first moment that I got to be in an archive. Again, the nerdery is coming out quite quickly. And I was able to read some of the early drafts of this musical. So this musical is, a, is called A Cavalcade of, an, of American History through, through the Marriage. In it, Val sort of looks at all of these different pastiches of different musical theatre styles. And, it, and this marriage sort of falls apart through through the story. And in the, the musical that ended up on Broadway, which was a horrendous flop and lost them all kinds of money, the marriage falls apart. And then they they somehow magically, they just get, they come back together. And that's the end. And it's happy ending. Lovely, lovely musical, the end. And I found a, a draft in the archives where that doesn't happen. And these two people who shouldn't be together, but they have children and they say, we, we, we love one another, but this isn't working and it's and it's the end. And, and this is 1948. And there is a version of this where actually that is the happy ending. And of course, it was never going to make it to, to Broadway, but there it was. And the thing that really gets me about that is I had that moment of going, oh, hang on a minute. This exists and no one's looked at this or seen this. And since then, people have come and kind of looked at it. But but yeah, I think that's for me the kind of something that set me off on this sort of archival work. I I actually think my answer to this is very similar to um, the idea of exploring a, a musical that gets to a complex emotional state that you know you didn't think was possible to arrive at. And um, I I would hope that a number of I mean maybe those of us who are, are decently familiar with with most musicals would know, but uh, Passing Strange is probably one of those for me. Uh, and, and it, you know, as far as one that quote unquote, no one has heard of, um, you know, it's a remarkable story. And I, I think it, it just, um, you know, like when you really start to sit and unpack some of the cons, I mean, I remember when I first came, like, and, and having, having also worked on the piece, seen the piece and worked on the piece. I remember when I, when I came back to working on it and, and really thinking oh boy this is this is a lot to to bite off like this is this this is you know there's a lot of real sort of existential larger than life concepts here that that sort of get presented in this very 
theatrical way, but but force you to sort of strip the layers of the onion back for yourself and, and sit with them and, and think about them. It's such a fascinating story because you know you have this story of this this young, you know, this young artist who 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 cannot find their place in the world, who chases to other spot parts of the world in order to to try and find that and and um you know and there's there's so much sacrifice in that there's sacrifice in self you know there's sacrifice in finding oneself losing parts of oneself as you find oneself you know and the show obviously ending with with the loss of of um of of family and his mother as a result and and being a part in doing so and and um and this this notion of the real, and so I just always I just always loved it for that because it it was something that was so out there in a way. But there's there's such like there are so many lines from that show that I think are honestly like like some of the best poetry humanity has probably ever heard. Like really, you know, there's some really really amazing amazing stuff in in that piece. One of the best things about sitting through a piece of art is thinking, I wonder if the writers of this really, really had to dig deep in order to have this exist because I have to now dig deep, right? And I think that's, I think that's, that's the most powerful thing we can do is, is force others to, um, to dig into their own human condition. And I, I just love that that show does that in such a cool way too. Yeah. Sarah, do you want to answer now the, yeah, I mean, of, uh, emotional state musical yeah i cry very i mean this this is the problem that <laughs> my emotional states i've got to in a theater are quite i struggle to not be heard or to be sobbing sometimes in the theater but i think the thing that kind of that in a good way punched, sort of felt like it punched me in the gut is talent from so bounce i mean i, I i've already blown the fact that i did go and see the original and i, I was very lucky to see um Roadshow, the kind of the version that worked really at the menu. And the song in there is talent. And there's a line, he, you know, he talks about all the talents that he has, and he's sort of quite good at everything. He can write a song, he can paint a bit, he can play a bit, but nothing that well. But the talent there, he says, What are the talent I had is for nurturing talent. And it's like, Sondheim, did you have to? Did you have to? And Sondheim says, teaching is a sacred profession. And it's that moment of like, oh yeah ow that's that's it that's it for me that's the thing that's the thing that I do and that's to feel so seen in a in a musical just messes you up so yeah I'm very very grateful for that moment but it it absolutely rawness as well. mm. great so we uh let's get on to our topic which is uh black history of British musical theater which um you both have a, a book about. And uh, yeah, so let's just, I guess, kind of start with how you both came to this topic. The shortest version, I think, of how we came to this story was a lot of time spent in a field, in the field of um, musical theater academia, listening to a lot of people tell us that Black people didn't exist. And, and confidently so. And so at one point we finally had to set out and just say, could this possibly be the case, right? It took a bit of interrogation on our own fronts. And we've been for years um, 
again, we, Sarah edited a collection, a book called Reframing the Musical as well that we, we worked on together before this. And I contributed a chapter on the work of the music director in that. And it was focused from a very black centric um, angle. And we just, you know, we, we had enough time and work diving into the history of, of black performance practice and black performance on, on Broadway and in the West End and elsewhere, you know, again, like as we've determined in this book, you know, literally happening everywhere. But we, we, we had done, we had been doing enough archival and um, historical recovery and digging, which wasn't complicated, just needed to be done, just needed to have some time. People who are actually willing to spend the time to go into go into the archives and, and request for the boxes with, you know, with um, firsthand material, go and find the digitized archives that now exist and, and just start digging. And we started finding connections of many names and people that we had also been coming across in, in earlier, in earlier work that we'd been doing. And, and so one thing led to another and we were like, Oh, this is like, this is actually a, this is an entirely buried, history that even we didn't know about right and there and again we can unpack all the reasons for why that's not okay but you know we we find like we gotta we gotta write this down and we knew in doing so it was still only going to be the first version of this right you know there will be hopefully this is just us you know i like to think about it as like us just kind of um digging to the you know digging in the earth and finding the door to an entire um tomb right and we've just kind of like dusted off and acknowledged that the door exists and then from there the work was easy because there was so once once we committed ourselves to the work of finding the material it was easy it's it was all it was all there because there's such a story i mean i think so i'm a white British academic for my accent but I immediately gives that away but um in terms of you know standing up and teaching the history of the musical and standing up and teaching the history of British musical theatre there is a certain version of it that gets told over and over and over again which is about white men doing cool stuff and sometimes they might allow a white woman in and that kind of incredibly exclusionary version of it just writes out the possibility or if it does allow it it's absolutely as the exceptional kind of moment and as Sean's saying you know this we, we had spent so much time sat awkwardly <laughs> listening to the kind of versions which kept saying this and looking at one another going is this and then actually when we worked on reframing we really had some big conversations then about that book and that idea of you know well, why don't we know the names of these music directors and I can't, I honestly can't remember the moment where we started to look at Britain specifically, but the thing that that's very often told about Black British history in the UK is that it starts after the point of Windrush. So there is a particular arrival um, from the Caribbean in 19, 1948. And then at that point, there is a kind of... Um, uh, assumption that, uh, fine, musical, th uh, the sorry, the, the presence of Black British kind of life can begin then but that absolutely isn't the case and uh, there's a really amazing historian called Peter Fryer who talks who says very clearly there has been a consistent presence of African diaspora of black British people in Britain for 500 years so there's this kind of tension between well hang on a minute what's actually going on in musical because 
something isn't kind of right here. And the more we started to look, um, I had a nice little tidy Excel spreadsheet where I was going to keep everything because, as I said, I, you know, I like to kind of to know where we're going. on. And it got to a point where there were more and more and more and more performances before Sean is dragging me away from this and, and talking about, well, we have to try and find a way to point to this story. Great. And so you mentioned uh, Windrush. Is that in 1948? Is what? So SS Windrush is, is the name of the ship that came from the Caribbean um, and it's seen as the point that sort of starts mass migration in the UK um, from places that had been colonized by Britain. So part of the deal of being colonized by Britain was you can have a British passport and you can become um, essentially a British subject kind of to a point. And it meant that you were able to come to Britain and frankly fill the incredible gap that had been um, for lots of different reasons that take place after the Second World War, there was a desperate need for people mm. to rebuild basically Britain in, in a kind of any meaningful way. And that Britain's industry, the NHS, all those things that come out of the kind of late 1940s into the, into the 1950s. But this version of Black British history, it's really important to say that, yes, June 1948 is a very significant part of Black British history, but it doesn't begin there. And the presence and importance of the of black contribution to British life obviously doesn't start there. So I think what what is surprising in some ways is the ways that in the history of musical theatre and in particularly the history of British musical theatre that has just been basically accepted as there's not really much before then and after then there's a bit and then there's a bit more. And actually what we found in the course of the book is that absolutely isn't the case at all at it yeah because your book only goes up to not only but it, it goes up to 1950 when uh people that's when people would start saying that things started yeah that there's sort of it becomes more accepted and I, <laughs> yeah we we got to a point where it was we have to start and stop somewhere <laughs> and I think fortunately in some ways I think by choosing this period it allowed us to look at a you know rapidly changing technology rapidly changing theatrical relationship between theatre and cinema, theatre and radio, and also to kind of start to, to think a little bit about some of the influence of the bigger musicals on kind of British theatrical life. But yeah. hopefully, you know, there is, there's more to be done. And certainly the next decade is a book in itself, for sure. There's, it's interesting too, because like the book, and, and we had a hard time with this as we were basically getting into the weeds of creating it was like you know you go on this dig to find what musical theater is mm. what are the musicals at this time right and so and I would have these conversations with Sari even you know because this I mean this is just like such a specific part of like how our collaboration I think works so well is that you know we we both um we are two sides of the the same coin but you know we we, we have very different you know so even as far as being British versus being American, right? Um, I, you know, I would say to Sarah, I'm like, well, what are the, the you know, like as, an, as Americans in terms of musical theater history, and I would say obviously in terms of how British, you know, musical theater intersects with um, knowing musicals as a whole and knowing it as an American form and its own capacity. And, you know, but I would say to Sarah, I'm like, well, what is the, what are the, you know, we, we get, told it's like the showboats and the Oklahomas right and we have these like 
these mammoth pieces that are like the magnum opuses of, of their time that get entrenched into these specific years where we know like the form like um, congeals and, and then moves forward, right? And, and just, and keeps, and keeps building. And so I would say to Sarah, like, what, what are those pieces here in, in Britain? Like what, you know, who, who are those pieces? Who are those people, right? Even if we just think about like, who are the white, what are those pieces written by white men? Cause that, you know, that's the same way that we look at it in terms of our current history and in, in, on the American side of things. And then that like forced us to really like actually step back and be like the form of like the musical, particularly on a very specific angle, as far as Britain is concerned, didn't really exist in that way for a long time. Right. And, yeah. but, or, and that it was also a collection and a, you know, it was this tumbleweed of all of the individual forms of, music and dance and play, but like that these things and performance and that these things are happening in theaters with theater makers with people who are creating the different forms and so there, there's a lot of this that um you know even as we talk about in the book like there's some people in the book that you're like how in the world do we have like you know we're talking about folks like cab calloway and there's names like louis armstrong right and you're, you're talking about these very specific even just if we're looking at that on a musical angle how are you how are we looking at people who are like very specifically music music based in a book about musicals but the the truth is that black networking and performance network is all about the connectivity of what you know what black artistry was and so that was how this form was becoming to was getting getting created right was was truly through the the creation of these black networks i mean the book starts in 1900 and we talk about like one of the first american shows to come over from you know into homie from it from uh from new york in, in 1903 and comes over to britain and and has and you know we some of that history was known we have we have in the book more of that history that wasn't known in regard to the so national this tour. is the thing i think that's really so we there are i mean there are many many strange edwardian musicals always about like servant girls over overpowering it's like reverse yeah. downton abbey there, there's kind of terrible musicals that we do know about some of them are funny but but many many terrible musicals but the the this idea of like well what is musical theater identity at this point the more you look for something that we think is the musical the worse it gets it doesn't look like that and actually my hunch is it probably doesn't really look like that in America either what actually happens is this sense that the way the musical or music and theatre and dance exist on a stage there is a blurriness between what in the UK we would call variety what was then called vaudeville in the in the US that actually as variety becomes reviews and as reviews kind of look a little bit more like musicals you still have things like Belle of New York coming over before um into homey there's still there is an interchange between the between the US and the UK but I think perhaps what's surprising in these musicals is that it's not just about the West End so into homey it's so fascinating we knew, and it is the thing that, again, we talked about this at the beginning about this idea of the exception that certain things are allowed to exist. So Will Marion Cook's musical is allowed to exist and he's allowed to be in the UK in this history. 
But I think where he's allowed to be is in the West End. So you you get this idea that Williams and um, and Walker, but Williams and George Walker were in the UK for a brief period and it didn't really kind of make much of an impact. But then when you start to look, so, so the amazing thing that makes this history possible is digitized newspaper records. So we've done lots of archive research, but practically being able to search for Indahomey as a name of a title, what that's meant is we've realized or been able to kind of track that it's not just, there was an idea that the show had come to the West End, to the Shaftesbury Theatre, which doesn't exist anymore, and then had been, um, had had maybe toured a little bit around the UK and possibly gone to Ireland. The reality is that there are two massive tours that it embarks on in a way that doesn't make any sense to what we think of as touring now. So, you know, that idea of um, regional touring, the idea of regional suburban touring outside of London less than sometimes like less than a mile and a half outside of central London to kind of large 2000 seat theatres all over the UK actually starts to kind of unsettle this idea well hang on a minute this isn't just a musical that came briefly to London and was seen you know by a few people this is a musical that is potentially seen by tens if not hundreds of thousands of people across the UK or certainly had the capacity to have been able to. And what does it mean that actually this musical, you can start to kind of not only was Will Marion Cook in the UK working on it, but the companies that came here started to work with um, Black British performers, started to tour here as well. So as they were working and and seeing all these regional theatres, kind of went okay well we could make a kind of living within this theatre system and start touring ourselves so you get people like the amazing Will Garland who may be the death of me in terms of following him in archives and setting up their own theatre companies unbelievable figures and you know and thinking about this also on that level of like we're talking about the first half of the 20th century right so we're talking about this stuff happening on boats we're talking about it happening Mm -hmm. on boats that have to travel the Atlantic Hard enough as it is, right, in terms of the the amount of energy and effort required to make sure that these networks of traveling performance can actually even just exist and happen, let alone that these are all Black networks moving around. So not only is it a boat that's coming over in 1903 to do this show over in London, but it's a boat of of black performers, of black artists coming over to do that, right? So then we're starting to unpack, which again, we, we I mean, we don't even, you can't do this fully in, the, in, in, in one book, right? Like, what are the implications of that? Well, the implications are that there is a, a, a um, enough of a network economically, financially, you know, in order to be able to support the fact that a boat can bring over all of these black performers, right? We have evidence of that sort of entrepreneurship, right? So it's just like, it's it's a wild, wild, wild thing. And it's an interesting thing to consider when we're talking about also, you know, this this exploration in the book of, of all of these, these things really being forms of resistance, right? Because it is this, this notion of like, oh yeah, like they're, they're in many instances, an entire um, community of, of, of all performers of color shouldn't have necessarily had access to the resource to be able to move around to place by place. And not, not only to not do that, but to also be like, make a living out of it and be paid well mm-hmm. for it. And to be 
appreciated, not just appreciated by, but like in many cases revered and like, you know, chased after as celebrities from, from some of these instances, you know, from some of the places. Right from the beginning of this period, right? right? The very beginning, right? So, so there's, there's a lot. And, and so all of these things, again, these are just like massive macro pieces of, of what is, is inherently has to be a massively complex history that nobody has talked about, you know, like the, it's always like, yeah, like, so like they, these, these people traveled, they were beloved, they had money, they were, um, yeah, they were beloved, they were celebrities, they were fantastic at what, at what they did, they were talked about to high and with high regard in numerous forms of press and in media, right? Like, so, so this is like at the shortest form of it, it's like, yeah, this is also like history. When we don't have to think about history, you know, part of my language being like super badass, but these are some real <laughs> badass people doing this stuff, right? Like, it's really cool to think about the fact that, the, you know, this is like, they're, they're the celebrities of their time too. And, and that that is um, so overlooked in, in a history and overlooked it a way that like, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about this for ages. Like, you know, I, I mean, I am, I'm a black creative in this art and I did not know of most of these names when we started on this journey, because that's the duty is that no, no black student who could be that you know the next thing ever has to pick up a book and, and read something that says you weren't here because not only were you weren't here but like you were the coolest people doing this stuff at the time so you know that's that's the word right yeah so let's talk about into homie and um you know what that show what is that show and why was it popular enough to to come to england and do this tour and so some of these things we find i mean i think the thing i'm gonna like chuck in there first of all that that i feel like we always it's really important to kind of state when we're talking about this is everybody crossing the atlantic to do that show and every show after that knew which ocean they were crossing when they were crossing it and i think it's really kind of again as as a white theater historian talking about this i think it's really important to say that very very clearly that the 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 meaning of crossing the Atlantic the other way is not lost on anybody. And there is from, from with this particular show, which is very complex in how it sets and portrays um, all different kinds of things, but in particular how it sets and portrays Africa is, is really challenging for us to kind of understand and to understand the kinds of resistance taking place. And I think one of the ways to re that's really helpful to understand it is, is thinking about there's a there's a single moment which just bowls me over and it's a little description in a regional newspaper so this is the thing that digitized newspapers allow you to see all of these moments and there's a moment that talks about will marion cook this incredibly important african-american composer conductor music lead, music leader i think probably is the best way of describing yeah. all of those different aspects of his, his work S conducting this musical but instead of facing the musicians, faces the audience. And there is, I mean, Sean, I think yeah. this just knocked us both over when we found it, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an immense, um, especially if you, if you actually look, and, and we talk about this in the book too, of course, if you, if you look into and kind of know the context of the piece and what he's conducting, right? It's, it's this sort of idea of, of um, 
really what seems to be a an act of reclaiming um an agency right over over this um you know over over this the performance and over the people who are in it right and creating a safe space it's an interesting thing to consider that as we were writing this part of writing this was developing a language that enabled us to speak in a way that was also um becoming of of, of what we were talking about and what i mean by that is that in most histories um there there's there's um there's a danger right in terms of a lot of how the language that is used in terms of how um, you know performers of color, works of color are depicted is 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 really just just to be frank, just not okay, right? Is is done in um, very very um, specific ways of of othering, right? Of of, of creating another in in that circumstances. So so you know that that one of the things in the book certainly that I think we've done well and. I'm, very, you know, most proud of us for, for looking at is, is how do we, how do we do this in a way that, um, you know, basically doesn't do that, doesn't, you know, that, that sort of just repositions the, the, the very vernacular, vernacular and the language within which we speak about this happening, right? And there's so many angles to which you can take on that too, right? Like, it's like, we can, we can look at these histories and say, well, these people, you know, didn't really know what they were doing and they, they didn't really know how cool they were. And they were just, they made, they happened to make a lot of money doing this, but, you know, they were actually really, a, you know, they were still pawns to all of their white counterparts. And, and it's like, what? Like, it's also just ridiculous, right? Like, you know, in, in that capacity, no, there, there's no, that doesn't, that just doesn't even make Humans. And that's how the story of Indahomey in the UK, I think, had been told that it might have been meaningful in the US, but in the UK, well, it's just really white consumption. And I think, you know, while obviously there is always a racist and racialized response to these performance practices, what does it mean to stand and resist? Of course, of course, resistance is embedded into the work as we find it. And I think you know, the, the very fact of, of transatlantic performance practice is inherently resistant. Yeah. So this musical sets up the idea and, and the tour that, well, what if we've got this history completely wrong? What if the version of it as an exceptional art history where these moments of resistance that Sean is talking about just happen every so often, every few years, that's absolutely what's 
we what the evidence what the information that we find in this research is just not the case so it sort of sets up for us this moment if you will have heard most people will have heard of interhomey musical theater kind of students it's a kind of thing that we you know we maybe start with in some ways and actually what happens if we go well then what's the next thing after that and what's the next thing after that and that kind of takes us to these amazing women who were doing very similar kinds of work in again into kind of multiple crossings of the Atlantic and also for the first time perhaps really understanding the relationship of of black British women as well so women who were born in the UK during this period kind of taking on performance identities and navigating this complexity of, of performance too so it definitely leads us on to these these other stories what is the next, I guess, moment that uh, you come to in the book? It's got to be the oh. Secret Florence Mills Memorial Concert. This is the one where you think if you had a time machine, this is where you should take it. And I would very much like to have seen it. It's a really incredible um, night. And we had kind of, it is sort of written about. So there is sort of been some information about it. So there's an incredible moment of performance that happens where Noble Sissel arranges a concert and on on the surface it is and it was also a charity concert to raise money there had been a flood in London and there was a kind of loads of different sort of you know theatre charity work to, to kind of collections after shows and stuff nothing ever changes uh, but in uh, 1928 there was this particular moment so on Sunday January the 29th at three o'clock doors open at 2.30 and there was an e uh, an afternoon and evening of performances. So performances in Britain at this point were still very regulated, and you didn't have theatre on a Sunday because it would be frightfully, frightfully shocking to have re- any kind of theatre on a on a Sunday afternoon. But what happens is we see under this kind of banner of uh, of fundraising a memorial for Florence Mills. And the more we started to kind of dig into this the more we realised that something very remarkable was going on. So this concert is written about a little bit because Oscar Hammerstein was there with Jerome Kern. And this was about the time when they were going to um, stage Showboat in London, having staged it over in um, on Broadway. And they had previously cast the role of Queenie as um, with a white woman in that role. And they were planning to do the same in London. And they came to this concert and watched Alberta Hunter, who we kind of know of as this amazing blues performer. And if you don't know her, go and watch some incredible performances of her wonderfully filthy songs that she was performing in her 80s. I love to shock my students with these songs because they're so rude. They're extraordinary. But she performed this incredible piece and they realised their mistake, right? They realised that, oh, and through this incredible day, so you have things like you have... um, not only does Cecil play himself, um, but you have Josephine Baker. So this is Josephine Baker's British premiere. And she flies over for this afternoon. She flies over. So the she and glamour in the late 20s to fly does. from Paris to as London. One, as one does. Casually. As one does. And she arrives in Croydon, which unfortunately American listeners might not. Know. I don't <laughs> know what the equivalent of that is, Sean. Are we, is it kind of 
I don't know, Yonkers or something. I don't yeah, know it's what. not the way you would place Jitsby <laughs> Baker really in as getting off the plane. But we see this incredible moment of black community and every performer who was working in Britain who could be there was there. So black British performers, we see African-American performers there, we see across the African diaspora, performers coming to be together to celebrate and remember the life of Florence Mills and this incredible day and act of resistance and I think that's the moment where you see this list of people who you know we have largely forgotten some of them we know about but most of whom we've forgotten where you think hang on a minute what is what is actually going on in the 1920s and that's one another of these little moments where you think I think the story of the musical is is wrong and we might need to start telling it very differently very quickly and that helps us to unpick all kinds of things about jazz and the musical the relationship between people like Noel Coward all of those things come from this amazing amazing one afternoon at the London Pavilion that was late 20s and yeah so like however we want to you know move through history if you want to talk about performances that um you want to highlight or productions you want to highlight should we talk about Mabel Mercer Sean I was gonna say it's yeah especially in, in through most of the book it's like probably most of this is is best we've we've grappled with this a lot because I think like especially as theater history goes we're taught often to fixate on the shows mm-hmm. right to think of the shows a lot and I think it's less about the shows and more about the people who were creating Right, um, which is a kind of amazing, um, yeah, that's an amazing angle to, to come at. Uh, this is the thing I remember. I don't remember exactly the moment that we signed the book, but I do remember being sat with Sean at the British Library where we had been for hours and hours and hours trying to think of like, what could we call this? What was it going to be? And it just suddenly came to us that an inconvenient black history of British musical theatre and say it's specifically an inconvenient, not the inconvenient. <laughs> Because it because there are so many more, but the you know the thing I think that's about that about it that's inconvenient is there just aren't that many musicals. What there obviously there are musicals within it, so there there are kind of moments where you know like Showboat where you do have this coming together. But you know before Alberta Hunter went into Showboat, she worked in variety theatre in Liverpool because she was sort of sent to get a sense of what that performance practice was like. And you get moments where you know you where we think of what the musical does so your beautiful question about moments where the emotion of a of a, of a piece surprises you in, in ways you maybe wouldn't know that there are kind of a couple of things that sit me, with me on that one of them is Mabel Mercer who again we know is someone who ended up being a kind of fixture of cabaret in New York in this very kind of husky voice she was in a lot of smoky rooms in Paris it did a lot of bad things to the top regions of her voice she had been a soprano and the thing that had always been told about her is this incredible picture of Mabel Mercer in what appears to be in the 20s, dressed in a tux, seems to be set up in, 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 sorry, in tails rather than a tux. Very, very glamorous, but it sort of seems like a bit of a joke. And there was a story that went along with it where she said, oh, I, you know, the conductor had flu one night. So I dressed up as a conductor and went on it. And it was sort of very much like, oh, Mercer, Mabel, you tell such, you know, tall tales. But actually the reality of that was she was their music director for several years. And it 
the idea of it being told as this a smaller thing absolutely doesn't meet with the reality. And we find in regional newspapers these moments where it's just completely by the by that she's the music director. It's not even, and we're talking about 1917. So wow. these are some of the moments that just strike me. Well, what does it mean that there is a black British woman working as an MD in 1917 in Britain? That's extraordinary that we've never talked about that. So that kind of knocks me. And the other moment, I think, is the one that that really sits with me. And I and Sean, I, I know too, is Edric Connor, who again has this incredible history in Britain, but during the war came over the over to the UK. Um, he's a civil engineer, he was, you know, many, many things, he was broadcast, an important broadcaster, but he also was a singer. And he performed in Variety Theatre and he sings Weeping Mary and he sings a spiritual. And the, the story that he tells in his biography is that he goes on, I think it's Cambridge Circus, that he goes on to do this show and goes on to sing the act. And he sings and he can't understand why there's an absolute silence in the theatre. And he sort of thinks that it's bombed, that it's been a mistake and leaves. And as he's leaving, he gets dragged back onto the stage by stage management. And as the lights, the house lights come back up, every single person in the theatre is crying because they know what these words mean. They've just been through the blitz, right? They've just been through losing their sons and, and families and the, the loss that London had experienced in the 1940s. these moments of performance that you know we don't think about how well we because I'm white because of white privilege because of all of these things we haven't really had to deal with the fact that black performance practice is absolutely fundamental to music to British musical theatre from 1900 to 1950 and if you tell that story if you say that sentence that everything that we think about British musical theatre has to change at that period so I think that's, I mean, Sean, are there moments for you that, that stay with you? Um, I mean, I, I, honestly, it's, it's amazing how every single individual moment in the piece is just like exceptional, right? Like, I mean, we, mm -hmm. we, we do a lot of recovery on the 
lineage of how dance, a lot of dance practice factors into this as well, which is a spot that I never thought I would be in as a, a musician slash music historian. Jordan ended up presenting to a dance history conference. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah, that is not that is not my future. But I will say that, you know, I mean, when it, the way that it became a part of the work that we do is that, you know, so for instance, one character in the book, um, I mean, there's there's two there's a couple of really um, very very present um, you know d- dancers uh, dance uh, choreographers who one of them is is Ken Johnson who is this um, you know he's this this Guyanese um, you know a young Guyanese uh, dancer again is 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 um, spends leaves Britain spent like ends up in Britain, then leaves Britain and spends some time um, in the in the States um, and becomes he, he takes a moniker. He takes this 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 nickname from um, from a dancer in the States and, and comes back over and sort of rebrands himself as, as sna- snake hips is, is, is what is what he's called. And, and so he does all this work, but also then as a dancer um, goes over and, and finds out through some weird moment of, of being involved with all, again, talking about the intersection of these different practices, um, goes to see a band. And it was like, I wanna be a conductor. I wanna be a dancing conductor, right? And so it's interesting to see that. And so it comes back over to Britain and ends up starting what is at the time in the, in the early 40s, late 30s, early, very early 40s, um, one like the best swing band in, in Britain, which is, which is just wild, a wild story in terms of how he dies. He dies again, like as in, in, um, you know, in, in a hit on, on London as well during the war, um, performing in the Cafe de Paris where a, like a, you know, a, um, you know, a bomb finds its way through what was supposed to be this sort of, um, impenetrable, you know, um, surface. And it's just fascinating, but it's interesting to see how, you know, how there's so many instances of this. And then we talk about this in terms of with relation to Cab Calloway, which is obviously a name that more people would know. Um, and there's also, you have Buddy Bradley is another figure we talk about extensively. Who's, who's a I think Buddy Bradley is the one who, I mean, and one of the great joys of this book is I, I now have, I'm very, very privileged to be working with Annette Walker, who is a tap dance. She's a tap dancer and tap historian. And Annette's looking at this more, but one of the things about Buddy Bradley is that he, for you know, for easily a period of twenty years, choreographed West End show after West End show, as well as regional shows, as well as nightclubs, as well as variety theatre, as well as television. I mean, good luck to her because speaking of people that would <laughs> drive me to kind of the end of distraction of finding out exactly what they were doing, and Bradley is so amazing. He comes over in 1930 with his dance partner and completely revolutionises how not only tap is presented on stage and and thought of within the musical he then teaches everybody he kind of restages how British musical film at which point in the early 30s is is quite a significant early stages of development and then he also in the middle of all of this introduces so there's a, a very kind of a lot of strange we have read many many strange biographies from this period but there's one from a Brit or white British um dance band leader and he says the most significant thing that happened in British music during the 1930s was that Buddy Bradley brought over his Duke Ellington records and played them to me and that this moment then completely changes the nature of what 
the band is supposed to be and starts to kind of argue for better. He he goes around town. He works for Cochrane, who's the big producer in town. And he goes to all of Cochrane's theatres and listens. And Cochrane says, you know, is this was this kind of what you want for your show? No, 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 this won't, this won't do. These orchestra, these bands I'm hearing, that's not right. I don't want that kind of pit band. And changes the orchestration, the, the instrumentation rather within the pit, which is not something we maybe have thought that the choreographer could have done. And these, not only the dancing um, conductors, which I would love to see Sean do, um, (laughs) it's all over the board every time that where you think you've got the end of the story, you've got the start of it. We, you know, I don't even think we've, we've scraped the surface and we worked very, very hard to find what we did. Um, And, and to, you know, to show that, uh, chatting with Annette and chatting about Will Garland and, was trying to put together a really nice little easy history of of two month period and realized that Will Garland, who is probably the most significant in British theatre during this period, just certainly during the 1920s and 1930s, producer and performer in his own right, was actually running multiple tour companies at the same time. And that's not in the book. It's just something that, you know, we've found since then. So there is there is no end to this history. But I would really urge, I think, people to kind of read it and to sit with it and to think about what this history might mean for them and and what they might do with it moving forward it does sound like a lot that like the relationship between you know the british musical theater and american musical theater is very tied together in you know just Mm. you know things coming over um, and it goes both ways. I think that's yeah, the thing that maybe yeah. we we hadn't really realized. So we talked a little bit about crossing the Atlantic, that there are some amazing um, moments of people like Will Garland going backwards and forwards. So performing at the Apollo and then coming back to regional theatre so it, in Harlem and then coming back to the UK. And there is a real sense that these are not isolated practices. So we see people casting in the US. We see people casting in the UK and taking things the other way so there is a fluidity between theatrical practices what I would say is just that this idea in in the UK that they're specifically about London absolutely isn't the case at this period at all it's far bigger than that far more regional far more multi um, far, far more forms of theatre are involved and things that we haven't thought of as musical theatre like nightclubs for example and weird stuff like modern dance suddenly we see musical theatre choreographers doing that as well so there are so many stories to be yet to be told because of this very confusing exciting kind of set of stories cool so let's move on to our next section uh, which is why is this so good and we're going to talk about the song Memories of You from Shuffle Along. So uh, yeah, why did you pick this song for the, why is this so good? Well, we've we've had to intersect with actually the song a few times in the last little while. I mean, we, um, so as part of the book coming to existence the last little while, since September, when we had the official launch of September t- last year in 21, we uh, we were fortunate to be invited by uh, Wigmore Hall in London, which is um, the oh boy, I guess you know to say that the leading chamber concert venue in in London. You know, certainly has been for most of the 
most of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we were we, we were very, very humbled to, to be invited there to, to do a concert, a joint concert and book launch of the book. And as a result, we wanted to and, and the way that we, we ended up in Wigmore Hall as well was was partly through some of this archival research and, and recovery in which we found that a number of these, these performers had been in the hall and that a number of the moments of these performers being in the hall had been not known to, uh, to the hall, the current, you know, the current management and, and artistic staff at the hall as well. So that was exciting. So we entered into that conversation and they said, hey, you know, as a part of this, you know, you've got a book coming up, would you like to launch here? And we were grateful for it. And we, um, we curated an entire concert as a result in order to do so. Um, interlinked with talking about the book, excerpts from the book, um, you know, very similarly to obviously how we're doing here. And one of the songs that, that came up was, was um, you know, it was uh, Memories of You, Shuffle Along. Um, we're talking about the, the writing team of, um, of uh, Blake and Sissel and, and, you know, we, it was a fascinating moment to try and take these snapshots of history musically, try and think about what would be representative of the moments throughout the book, of the people throughout the book. Uh, you know, we, we did that. We, we had um, selections from, we had a selection from Indahomey that was all instrumental from the overture that we featured. Uh, we had different form. Weep and Mary, the the piece that Sarah previously mentioned, was 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 a part of that concert. We, um, you know, so, so so it was a variety of that. And uh, yeah, memories of you, I think, is especially of of thinking about the um, the influence of. I mean, of course, just um, UB Blake alone, Noble Sissel. If you you know, mm-hmm. knowing those those two figures as far as black the history of black theater goes um is certainly it's pretty important uh and and yeah it was it was beautiful to to be able to feature that i also had a um i i, I uh, music directed and orchestrated a concert a few months after uh the after the um <laughs> after the book launch here on the, the the American side of things, uh, down in Baltimore with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and that piece, um, our our whole overture for for Andre de Shields, and our our whole overture was a, a celebration of all the music of UB Blake, because UB Blake is from Baltimore, and again, had talked about all these things on the American side, but numerous intersections, of course, with with Britain um, and and British theater, as as they did, and went back and forth to do so, and. Yeah, we. I, it just it was a it was a perfect opportunity to sort of feature what is um, not only just a beautiful song in that capacity, but also uh, something that speaks so succinctly to I think what you know what we what we have written about and, and some of these really really influential figures as well.
It's an extraordinary piece. I think the, the song, as it you know, it, it speaks of of a longing and and nostalgia, but also a kind of uncompleted nostalgia too. And I, I think the sort of it, there's very little resolution in it, so it's heartbreaking. But it but it's also joyful. And this this joy and pain, obviously, is such a feature of black music and and particularly of their practice too. Um, but it, it was funny in preparing, and, and I refound the clip of Audrey McDonald singing it, and I just, I, I was very, very lucky to see that.
and she is something else in that piece because it starts off spoken and then goes back into this song but you know the emotional gut punch of this material is is kind of extraordinary so it's something that somehow has become for me super associated with all of this because it because it sort of speaks to you know it speaks to their influence and when we think of Cecil Blake maybe we it's been understood that they hugely influenced um the US musical theatre I don't think there's ever really been any understanding of the fact they were also writing for Noel Coward so this relationship is so important and yet so maybe under under poorly understood rather um yeah this song is just it's a moment to kind of to dwell and to and to think about yeah for sure yeah it's gorgeous and it it also you know it's the nostalgia of this period right Mm -hmm. of thinking of hearing these sorts of you know these these something with this type of lush writing you know lush lush sort of soaring work harm um melodically and and this sort of rich harmonic language that's that's so representative of this of you know this music in the 20s and 30s and 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 that sort of beautiful um that sort of beautiful orchestrational element to it too which is which was so gorgeous and um yeah it was it was lovely we, we had a lovely time doing it in in the book launch we had it with both um uh, the, the two perform- uh, Esme Sears and Jonathan Andrew Hume, who are both uh, two mm-hmm. Black British performers in theater, uh, were both were, were, were in the concert with us as well, which was phenomenal. Um, just two exceptional artists on their own right. And, and yeah, and, and it was, you know, we were fortunate to do it as a duet. And it was, it was really lovely to hear them, hear them sing that version mm-hmm. of, of my arrangement of it as well, which was, which was really touching. Yeah, I was going to ask, was the duet your arrangement or was it originally a duet or um... it was it was my arrangement yeah it was sort of we 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 and we talked a lot about this in terms of the context of all the music and kind of said how do we you know like what like because we we knew with working with Jonathan and Esme that we we wanted to feature them in in so many ways but also feature them in in as many opportunities to celebrate the the power of the togetherness of of black voices in one space mm-hmm. and so it was yeah it was just a really really cool opportunity to do that together and um yeah and it's just you know it's just again sometimes it's you know we we talk so much about particularly with with blackness and art you know it's like this there's a lot of there's a lot of pain right there's a lot of pain that you know of course i mean which is part of lineage and part of having to retell the story but sometimes it's also just gorgeous to have a um, a piece that you know at its core is still just just beautiful and just just uh just beautiful just beautiful you know so so yeah so it was that that was it was a very lovely time Just 
Nice. Yeah, no, I, I love this song. I, I agree. Like the language in it is so poetic and and beautiful. The the line, a rosary of tears is um yeah. rhyming with yesteryears, you know, mm. it's just like just beautiful. And um yeah, and I think the your version, the duet really, really brought out a lot of that, the harmonic language that I, you know, you you hear, I don't know, I, I feel like in the other versions that I listened to, the, you know, Audrey McDonald singing and the mm. the um, the other one you sent. Um, the Louis Armstrong the Louis one. The Armstrong one. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I definitely hear the harmonic language in there, mm. but I, there was something about your version that really, maybe because it was just on, you know, solo piano that, you know, mm. I could I could really hear all that come out beautifully and, and their voices over it and everything. Mm. So thank, thank uh, you. And I, yeah, it just works really so well as a duet, like, you know, especially because the, the lyrics speak of a, a you and, and, mm. and then here's the you. <laughs> mm. exactly. And I think there's something of the flexibility. We think of, or musical theater studies has traditionally thought of songs being portable as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But when we think about things like Wedges and Heart and the, that music, why we love it, we love it because you know, I've listened to that music as a, you know, as a slightly whiny teenager, and now it, for you, it means something totally different. And and it it belongs in the middle of the musical as much as it belongs in the middle of a concert and in the middle of a nightclub and in the middle of all of, you know, it is a jazz standard in itself, Memories of You. The, my favourite version of it is of Alberta Hunter in her 80s, kind of speak singing it. it in, oh, she wow. was, you know, very, very elderly by this point, to UB Blake, and he, mm. and she, it is just that's the that's the duet as well to kind of to come back to is extraordinary. Yeah. Okay. Oh yes. Now waking skies at sunrise. Every sunset, every sunset too. Seems to be you be. It seems to be bringing memories. Well, uh, we'll uh, move on then to something wonderful where we just talk about something upcoming or current in musical theater uh, that we are excited about or want to give a shout out to. Well, I am afraid I'm still thinking about the fact that Andrew Carfield says that he wants to do George Chirac in Sunting the Pearl with George. I need that to happen in my life. I need someone to put him into that role and produce it. Thanks very much. Um, though, but I was going to talk about um, just hearing about the Savian Glover uh, Paul Jerry, which is incredibly exciting for theatre nerds everywhere. Yeah, I think it's it's an exciting time for theater. I know certainly on this side, as far as being in New York, there's 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 lots of stuff on the horizon. You know, lots mm-hmm. of cool stuff, lots of cool workshops happening. Um, you know, uh, I've been to see some amazing pieces of theater, and you know that some musical theater, some not. You know, that intersect and and it's it, with. Um, you know, with, with blackness. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's a cool thing, you know, and talking about this in relation to the book and stuff too, but it's just an amazing, like to have a month where, you know, where I can be conducting over at the MJ, the musical and see, you know, and see how, how MJ is just like hitting audiences so hard in terms of celebrating this black icon of, of music and art. Right. And then to go to, um, 
to to see a show like Tamblin Bones at Playwrights Horizons that is you know is is this um, complete commentary on uh, you know minstrelsy recalibrated into the twentieth century, also utilizing like hip hop and new forms of music to do that. And then to hear about like the success of something like Black No More, which has been running in the city, right? There's a lot of, and that's just, again, just in thinking specifically about um, stuff that has emerged that, that has focused around you know, uh, exploring Blackness. And there's there's so much beyond that as well. So it's a, uh, it's it's an exciting time. There's gonna be a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff to catch in the next couple of years. You know, we've-, we've Strangely. Not- opening is strangely very sad i don't have tickets to come back anytime yeah. soon yeah strangely reopening you know there's so much there's so much right so i, I think it's um again we're on the renaissance of it thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.